Several times during the early months of COVID, we hosted a testing site out in our parking lot. I'll bet some of you took advantage of that. I had no symptoms, but I thought it might be a good idea for me to get tested. And so one afternoon, I walked out to the tent that was out there and was immediately greeted by a a very friendly woman. She obviously knew me, but I didn't recognize her. She was wearing a Tyvek suit, and she had on two masks. I could hardly understand what she was saying, but we bumped elbows, and we chatted amiably, and then she jammed this thing up my nose like a toilet plunger. (laughs) When I got back inside, I mentioned to my brother-in-law, Dan Griswold, that I had been tested, and he said, oh, did you see Dana? Who? I asked. Dana, my wife, your sister, did you see her? I said, was she out there? He said, she gave you the test, Mark. I had no clue that it was my sister who was shoving that very long Q-tip way up into my brain. If I had, I might have asked her to recuse herself. This morning, we, uh, we turned to Luke's continued account of the Easter story, and he shares with us a story that's unique to his gospel. Nobody else writes about this wonderful story, which I love. It is a story of two people on a long walk with an intense conversation who are encountered by a stranger that they should have recognized, but they didn't have a clue who he was. Turn with me to Luke chapter 24, please, and we will pick up this last part of the Gospel of Luke, starting with verse 13. This is the story of the road to Emmaus. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. This is the word of the Lord. So first of all, when did this story take place? On that very day. What very day are we talking about? Resurrection Day. We're talking about Easter, and I I just want that to sink in for a moment. Earlier that day, earlier that morning, Jesus was lying in a borrowed tomb as dead as a doornail. But sometime in the early morning hours of that day, God breathed life back into him, and he gasped, and he opened his eyes, and he got up. And this is the moment that changed eternity. The Son of God raised to life after being executed on a cross. So, we'd have to admit that this was a pretty big day in Jesus' career, wouldn't you? And his ministry, his Messiah career, this was a biggie. So surely, on this day of resurrection... Jesus is going to have a full schedule, lots of appearances to prove how alive he really is. Where would he go? Maybe he would go to the pinnacle of the temple and stand up there so that thousands in Jerusalem might behold him. Or maybe he would return to that little mountain just next to the Sea of Galilee where he preached a famous sermon that drew thousands and thousands of people. But first, first he had another group he had to visit, didn't he? First, he he would have gone to his disciples, his hand-picked inner circle. Surely, 
Surely the first thing on Jesus' resurrection day agenda will be to meet and greet with Peter and James and John and all the rest, right? Nope. Before Jesus even appears to the disciples, the newly risen Son of God chooses to spend His first resurrection afternoon walking on a road with two strangers. We know nothing about them other than the fact one of them is named Cleopas, but other than that, Bupkis. They were nobodies in the gospel story. We're not even sure whether they were both men. Some believe it might have been a husband and wife on their way home together. And after this story is told, after Luke tells this account, they disappear into the mists of history, never to be heard from again. We never see them again. Don't you find it amazing that Jesus would prioritize his time this way? Easter day, he's walking and talking and eating with two people who don't even recognize him. And this wasn't a 10-minute appointment. They walked seven miles. That took a couple of hours at least. And then they had a dinner together, as we will see. So maybe three or four hours together. On the most important day in the history of the world, Jesus chose to spend hanging out with two nobodies. Except they weren't nobodies to Jesus, were they? They mattered to him. We don't even know the second person's name, but Jesus did. We don't know their story. But Jesus took the time to listen. So for us, type A, fill in your schedule, plan your work and work your plan sorts. This is a very wasteful use of the greatest grand opening in history. The grand opening of Jesus' tomb. This is a waste. But Jesus didn't think it was wasteful at all. I wonder, is there anyone here this day who feels like a spiritual nobody? Maybe you worship here every week. Maybe you came back at the invitation to to try one more week from last Easter. But the truth be told, you would say you're not even sure that Jesus knows you really, that he cares about you, that he has the time of day for you. He's got a universe to run. He's got a messed up world, another catastrophe in Alabama. I mean, he's he's got plenty of stuff to give his attention to. What time does he have for a nobody? And this story says Jesus actually does have time and that you are not a nobody to Jesus. You and you and you and you and every single one of you, you matter deeply to him. He knows you, he knows your name, and you matter deeply to him. Do you need to hear that this first Sunday after Easter, there are no nobodies to Jesus. Let's keep reading the story. Verse 17. Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered them, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, what things? (laughs) And they said to them, what things? He said said to them, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped 
that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now that's a Bible study I'd like to attend. How about you? Maybe Jesus chose these two nobodies because they were so faithful, because they had heard about the resurrection of, of him, and, and they had believed it, and they were excited to see the next new thing that Jesus, the risen Christ, was going to do. Could that be his reasoning? Nope. As they're walking along this seven-mile journey, hashing it out back and forth, the word that says they were discussing means that they were like lobbing shots back and forth at each other. As they're walking along, Jesus just kind of sidles up next to them and says, hey, what are you guys talking about? And Luke tells us that they came to a dead stop, and it said, and they looked sad. They looked sad. The Greek word means bummed out. <laughs> Not really, but they, that's what they looked like. And then, then Cleopas, after looking sad, he asks this great question. Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? This is high comedy. This is funny stuff. Cleopas says to the resurrected Jesus, are you kidding me? What rock have you been living under? And Jesus could have responded, well, I haven't been exactly under a rock. Maybe behind one. But go ahead and tell me what you're talking about. Jesus plays dumb. And, and since they don't recognize him, they then launch into a laundry list of all the things he was supposed to have done. They had such great expectations for him, didn't they? They were there on Palm Sunday along with the, the adoring crowds. They threw their robes down on the street in front of him as he rode down in that little coat. They cried out with the rest of the masses, Hosanna, save us! They expected Jesus to storm Jerusalem and kick out the Romans and restore the kingdom of Israel. But it didn't quite happen that way, did it? On Palm Sunday, he was making his dramatic entrance into Jerusalem, and five days later, he's hanging dead from a cross. And so, Luke says, very understatedly, they were sad. They were disappointed. They were disillusioned. Sure, there is this, this rumor about Jesus rising from the dead, but come on, who could, who could believe that? This, the rumor sure wasn't enough to keep them in Jerusalem, was it? I mean, only hours after this purported resurrection took place, after they, after they had heard news of this, they're blowing town. They aren't even hopeful enough to stick around and see how things pan out. They're so disappointed, so discouraged. And this disappointment, I think, is captured in verse 21, where we read, but we had hoped that he was 
the one to redeem Israel. We had hoped. We had hoped. This is a story of dashed hopes. It's the story of heartbreak. This first Easter afternoon was for Cleopas and his companion, a day of disappointment. They had such high hopes for Jesus, such high hopes, and he didn't come through for them. He let them down. Have you ever felt let down by the Lord? I bet you have. I bet there's some here this morning who, if you were honest, would admit that you right now are feeling a little disappointed with Jesus. Maybe you believe, maybe you pray, maybe you go to church, maybe you don't. But there came a time when you really wanted Jesus to step up and to come through for you, and you felt let down. And it makes you feel sad, just like it made Cleopas and his companion. And I think of, of friends who have felt this way. I, I have, think of a man whose marriage failed. He never thought he would be among the divorced but here he is, living with his dashed hopes, feeling like Jesus left him down. I think of a couple who were faithful, faithful churchgoers and servants until they experienced two stillbirths, and their hopes were dashed, and now they're walking away from Jerusalem. They're walking away from a disappointing Jesus. I think of people, even as I look out here today, who had loved ones who were stricken with cancer, and you prayed fervently for them to be healed, and they were not. They were taken instead, and you are let down. Even this week, I talked to a family who's got kids, four of them. All of them were raised in the Lord. All of them baptized, just like you saw up there, and right now, every single one has turned their back on God and turned their back on the church, and they are sad. They're disappointed. That's how these travelers felt. We had hoped. We had hoped. It's such a forlorn cry. But notice what Jesus does with it. Notice how patient he is with their disappointment. He doesn't just fix it. He could have said, ta-da, here I am. I'm alive. You can stop being sad now. But that's not how Jesus deals with these disappointed disciples. Not with some dramatic disclosure, but rather, in this case, with an unhurried walk and conversation and the greatest Bible study of all time. Jesus led a Bible study about all the places he showed up in the Old Testament. Wouldn't you have loved to bet a fly on that wall? I wonder, I bet there are some here today who are a little disappointed with the Lord. You may not be eager to admit it, but I bet that's where you are, disappointed that he has not come through for you the way you hoped, not in your job or in your health or your marriage. I have two things that I pray for every day, and Jesus has not come through yet. But this story reminds me, it reassures me, it's a long walk. It's a long walk. And Jesus is right there, walking with you, and he has everything under control, even when it doesn't seem that way. Do you need to hear that today? That's a long walk. Let's finish the story. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, stay with us. For it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. 
So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened. And they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the Scriptures? That Bible study must have been something else. What a powerful experience. So by the time they arrive at their home and Jesus looks like he's going to go on, they said, oh, please stay. They begged him. The word is actually coercive. They, they still didn't know who he was, but they didn't want him to leave. And so at table, it was then when he blessed the bread and broke it that suddenly their eyes were open and they recognized who they had spent half of resurrection day one with. And then just as suddenly Jesus vanishes from their sight and they sat there in utter amazement and remarked, did not our hearts burn within us? I love this story. It is so powerful. And it was, the, it was the object of the greatest, most embarrassing moment in my preaching career. 20 years ago, I was preaching this text. And when I reached that punchline, I, I wanted to really drive home the point. Did not our hearts burn within us? And so I paused and I mustered up all my Shakespearean tones and every deep thing that I could bring. And I just proclaimed to the congregation, did not our farts burn within us? <laughs> I tried to keep going, <laughs> hoping that, that maybe no one caught on. Oh, they caught on. And so a snicker over here and a snort over here, and pretty soon the whole place was gone. And I finally gave up. And it was such a, a bummer because it could have been such a dramatic moment. It is such a transformation in these people. I mean, that afternoon, they were sad. They were heartbroken. By the evening, they are heartburning. Heartbroken to heartburning. Don't you long for that? Don't you long for that kind of fire to be burning in yourself, to live with that kind of passion? I long for that. I long for our church to be that kind of church on fire for the Lord. I think one of the reasons that people show up at Easter and maybe at Christmas and don't show up any other time is there's this feeling of, of spiritual flatness, like faith doesn't really make any real difference in real life. But what if it did? What if it does? What if your heart could be set on fire like that? Do you remember when your heart was like that, when you were a new believer? You could not talk enough about Jesus. What if your faith could be revived like that? I think the key is found in these three short words in verse 29 where they say to Jesus, stay with us. Stay with us. Don't leave us. Stay with us. They came to the end of their journey. Jesus seems to be moving on and they cry, stay with us. The, the, the Greek really suggests, they, they said, we insist. We insist. Stay with us with us. They, they still don't know who this guy is. All they know is that the more time they spent with him, the more time they wanted to spend with him. And there was something about him that lit a fire in their hearts. A while back, I met a woman at a concert. She turned out to be a neighbor. And so days later, on my way home, as I drove by, I saw her out in her yard. And so I stopped, and I rolled down the window and said, it's good to Good to see you again. 
Cindy and I would love to, to come over sometime and, and say hi and get to know you a little bit better. I'll never forget her response. She said, oh no, don't do that. I don't want you to come. Wow. That was I, honestly not the response I was expecting. I thought I might hear, that would be delightful. Why don't you come? We can have tea together and get to know each other. Mm-mm. It was, oh no, don't do that. I don't want you to come. And I wonder how many here this morning have said that same thing to Jesus. He's there. He's eager to have a relationship. He wants to be with you. He's eager to turn broken hearts into burning hearts. And all we need to say is, stay with us. Come be with us for a while. Instead, what he hears from us are these sad words, oh no, don't do that. I, I don't want you to come. That seems too serious. That seems too religious. That seems too deep. It is amazing how resigned we can become to a lifeless spiritual life. We aren't really that happy. We don't feel that empowered. We are a little disappointed, perhaps, that life has let us down. God has let us down. But we won't draw close to the one who can make sense of all of that craziness. We won't do anything differently than we're already doing, anything that might stoke the fires of our hearts. We won't go to Alpha. We won't join a life group. We won't worship more faithfully. We won't pray more regularly. We won't read God's Word more faithfully. We won't do anything different. And we're surprised that we live in listlessness. Perhaps it starts with us simply saying to Jesus, would you stay with me? Come closer to me. Don't leave me. Something struck me about this story that was funny. There are several things I find funny in this story, but these two people beg Jesus to stay without knowing who he is. But it is in the moment that they finally recognize him, what happens? Poof, he's gone. Yeah, how frustrating must that have been? They finally know who this amazing guy is, and, they, and he disappears, and they must have been screaming at the ceiling saying, wait, wait, don't go yet. Now that we know who you are, we really want to hang out with you. But he didn't stay. In fact, I, I don't think he could. And we get the hint from something he told his disciples one time. He said, if I don't leave you, the Comforter, the Holy Spirit, cannot come. Jesus was one man, one body, one place. He said, if I don't leave you, I can't send the one who can be with you all of the time in all of your situations. It is someone else besides Jesus who was always meant to be the one to stay with us. Always meant to be the one who would burn in our hearts. We are on the Pentecost side of Easter. We who cry out to the Lord, would you stay with me? Stay with us. We've already had that cry answered in the gift of the Holy Spirit. He will never leave us or forsake us. He is with us 24-7. And that is actually a great trade up from walking alongside Jesus to having Jesus walk every step within us. But we Presbyterians, too often, we're a little nervous about this Holy Spirit thing. We, we, we don't... We don't tap into that power. We, we don't tap into that fire. The fire of the Holy Spirit of Jesus who already lives within us. And for those of us who are listless, who are flat, who are disappointed with life, for those of us with lost marriages or lost babies or lost jobs or lost love or lost hope, 
May I remind you that Jesus isn't just with us. He is in us. His Spirit right in the middle of it all. He is heart burning with us when all is well. He is heartbreaking with us when all seems broken. There He is in the midst of it. And that, I think, is the punchline of Emmaus. Stay with us, we cry. And the Lord Jesus says, are you kidding? I'll never leave you. When was the last time your heart was on fire for the Lord? When was the last time? Perhaps the cry of your heart this day needs to be, come, Holy Spirit of Jesus. Come and fill me, revive me, inspire me, teach me, empower me, illumine me. Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, I need you more than I've ever needed before. Will you stay now? with me. Let us pray. And so that is our prayer. And I invite you even now as you're sitting there, would you just turn your hands over with palms up on your laps as an invitation to the Lord Jesus, the Spirit of the risen Christ, to come stay with you anew. And would you pray with me these words just after me, just pray these words. Come Holy Spirit. Say that. Come. Say it again. Come Holy Spirit. Fill me, say it. Revive me. Empower me. Illumine me. Teach me. Holy Spirit, will you come and stay with us in new power as you've never done before? I pray that for my life as the preacher. I pray that for the elders, both those who were just ordained and those who have been serving all this time. I pray that for every member in this church who loves you. Would you come and stay with us? Would you descend upon us in power? Would you anoint us with your power? Would you fill us with your gifts? Would you give us the courage to proclaim the hope that is yours alone? We know, Jesus, you never disappoint. In the end, it's a long walk, but in the end, you are there, and we discover something way better than we ever could have imagined. Holy Spirit, we want to be those kind of people. And so we pray again, come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thanks for joining us today at Chapel Hill Church. If you'd like to visit us in person, we're located at 7700 Scancy Avenue, Gig Harbor, Washington. Our worship services are Sundays at 9 and 10.30. We hope to see you there. To learn more about our upcoming events, visit us online at chapelhillpc.org. Sing that again, Jesus, the hope of glory. 